Now, Christians are often criticized for believing in things that can't be seen or proven, for being irrational, unscientific, for looking to imaginary gods when they can't explain things, when they need something, or when life doesn't make sense, for believing in angels and demons and even a god that cannot be verified with the senses. Well, it is true that God is spirit, and we do believe in unseen spiritual realm that can't be verified by our physical senses. But the focus of our faith took on flesh and lived among us. He took on a body that could be seen and touched and listened to. Jesus is not a figment of our imagination. He's a real person who lived and walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. He lived in time and space, and his existence can be proven historically. Now, he can't be proven scientifically, any more than we can prove scientifically that George Washington or Abraham Lincoln ever lived. Historical events and persons are not subject to the scientific method for verification, but they are verifiable historically. Evidence for their existence can be scrutinized, and the record of their accomplishments and or teachings can be documented and confirmed. Now, we may not like everything we find, especially when we discover they did or even said things that, while apparently acceptable in their day, are now offensive and no longer acceptable. And we may discover that some things we've been taught about them really aren't true, that they were embellished to emphasize a, a positive character trait or totally fabricated to make a story more appealing or marketable. No, George Washington did not say, I cannot tell a lie, I did it. Scholars have dismissed his statement about the cherry tree as being fiction, created by Mason Locke Weems in his best-selling biography of our first president. Some things aren't true. The life and ministry of our Lord, however, has been and continues to be the most scrutinized life in the world. And while much from legend and superstition has had to be rejected, the biblical record has been confirmed as true over and over and over again. Jesus was and is for real. And his teachings about the unseen world were confirmed by miracles that could be seen. Miracles that culminated in his resurrection from the dead. So as I said, Jesus is not a figment of our imagination. He was for real. And he had a real flesh and blood body. And when he died 
He left that body behind, a body that could be seen and touched and carried and that needed to be cared for or at least that some thought needed to be cared for. Actually, it wasn't going to be left behind long enough to really need the care it was given, but, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, we're going to look at events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus as we draw close to Easter. We finished our study in 2 Corinthians, and our next study, the book of James, doesn't lend itself to sermons that can readily be made into Easter sermons. So we're going to go back to some passages we explored 11 years ago when we were working our way through Luke's gospel when it wasn't Easter and recast them as messages for the Easter season. We're going to begin by going back and taking another look at the body of Jesus. Or, I should say, a look at the historical record of his body and what happened to it. We're going back to Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 50. And behold, a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning and died at three in the afternoon. He'd been on the cross for six hours before breathing his last and yielding up his spirit. And if up to the Romans, his body would have been left on the cross for days after his death. It was their practice throughout most of the empire to leave bodies on crosses as warning to other potential criminals. Bodies would be left until they decayed and were eaten by dogs or vultures. The Jews, however, objected to this practice. The Old Testament taught that dead bodies defiled the land, and they did not want the Holy Land to be defiled. And they especially did not want bodies on crosses during holy days and Sabbaths. They did hate Jesus enough to have him crucified during the festival, the day after Sabbath, but they wanted him out of sight by the Sabbath. So they went to Pilate and asked to have the legs of Jesus and the others crucified with him broken. That would assure that their death would come before sundown and the beginning of the Sabbath. Well, John tells us that the legs of the criminals were broken, But when they came to break Jesus' legs, the soldiers discovered he was already dead. They did, however, pierce his side with a spear, inadvertently fulfilling the prophecies that indicated his bones wouldn't be broken, but that he would be pierced. Jesus was dead. Roman soldiers made sure of it. 
but his body was still on the cross. Who was going to take it down? Apparently, his disciples were afraid to do so, at least those who had openly been his disciples. So a member of the Jewish council that had condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, asked Pilate for permission to take down the body of Jesus. He wasn't, however, doing the council's dirty work, simply getting rid of the offending body. Luke tells us he was a good and righteous man. And Matthew and John tell us he was actually a disciple of Jesus, albeit a secret disciple. Luke does make it clear that even though he was a member of the council, he hadn't consented to their plan to have Jesus crucified. But there's no indication that he had publicly objected to their plan. In fact, John tells us he was afraid of the Jews. After Jesus' death, however, Joseph took a courageous public stand and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And the care he gave the body makes it clear that he had the highest respect for Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Now John tells us that Nicodemus, another member of the council, assisted Joseph in preparing Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus, you may recall, was another secret disciple of Jesus. He's the one who came to Jesus by night and asked the question that led to our favorite Bible verse, John 3.16. One commentator has noted, the death of Jesus made formal disciples go underground and underground disciples surface. And that certainly seems to be the case. Nicodemus was the one who supplied the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes that was used to prepare Jesus' body for burial. If you want to know why myrrh was used and what oil of myrrh smells like, ask my grandson Levi to open his bottle for you. He's got it in junior worship. Shar recently gave it to him as a reward for earning points in Sunday school. Now, 75 pounds or 100 litra of myrrh and aloes that was used to prepare Jesus' body probably wasn't an oil. It was in a, a solid form. But it was still an unusually large amount. Normal Jewish burials called for five pounds of spices, an amount usually found in Jewish households. 75 pounds were used in royal burials and may indicate an attempt by Nicodemus to acknowledge who he now felt Jesus to be and to make up for failing to do so while he was alive. 
What is evident is that he and Joseph both sought to honor Jesus after his death. And they did so by caring for his body in a very respectful manner. They did, however, have to move quickly because Sabbath would begin at sundown. Mark tells us that Joseph bought a linen cloth, a cloth that may still be in existence as the Shroud of Turin, and wrapped his body in it. John says they bound it in linen cloths, but that doesn't mean a shroud could not have been used. They may have covered his face with the face cloth John mentioned, draped a shroud up and over his body, and then bound everything with wrappings and spices, mummy style. They then laid the body of our Lord in a tomb, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Now that sounds a bit strange to us, but tombs were in fact used more than once. A body would be wrapped and placed in a tomb until it decayed. Once the flesh was gone, the bones would be collected and placed in a stone box called an ossuary. Many ossuaries could then be stored in a single tomb or in the catacombs. We're also told that Jesus' tomb was cut out of solid rock and that it was located in the garden near where Jesus had been crucified. Matthew tells us it was Joseph's own tomb. Obviously, Joseph was a man of means. And burying Jesus in his tomb fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So the body of Jesus was prepared by two men, placed in a tomb, and secured by a large stone that was rolled into place. And what they had done had not gone unobserved. Luke tells us that the women who had come with Jesus out of Galilee followed after the men, and they saw the tomb and how the men had prepared his body. And true to the nature of women, They decided the men hadn't done it right. So they went back into town, prepared more spices and perfumes, and made plans to go back to the tomb after the Sabbath and do it right. They then rested on the Sabbath, but apparently everyone didn't. Matthew tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate the day after the day of preparation, which would be the Sabbath, and told him they were worried about the body of Jesus. They said, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. They then asked that he make the grave secure, so the disciples couldn't steal the body and claim he had risen. Pilate told them since they had a guard, they could make it as secure as they wanted, and they did so sealing the stone, and posting a guard. Thus, the body of Jesus was in a tomb, wrapped in 75 pounds of spices, 
sealed, and guarded. But he wasn't to be there for long. As we discover when the women came back looking for the body. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. On the first day of the week, which, by the way, is not Monday, the women returned to finish caring for the body of Jesus. They had prepared the spices and perfumes before the Sabbath and left home on Sunday morning before the sun, S-U-N, had risen. On the way there, they were discussing how they would get into the tomb, wondering who would roll the stone away for them. They apparently didn't know the soldiers would be there or were supposed to be there. But when they got there, they found the stone had already been rolled aside and Jesus' body was gone. And it's still gone today. So I don't have a body to show you. I can't take you to the body and say, here's Jesus. I can't even show you with certainty the tomb in which he was buried. And even if we did know for certain which tomb had held his body, he wouldn't be in it. On the other hand, if we dig through 10 feet of concrete, under the floor of Lincoln's memorial, we could find the body of Lincoln. We know he's there. In fact, a relative of my late Uncle Ed actually saw the body of Lincoln when his casket was opened in 1901 before his final interment. Lincoln's body is still in his tomb. Jesus' body is no longer in his. And if it were, it would ruin Everything. If I could produce the body of Jesus, we would not have a risen, living Savior. So no, I can't offer to you physical proof that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. But the historical evidence that Jesus did, in fact, walk among us is rock Solid. And the testimony of those who died as martyrs, refusing to recant their testimony that they had seen the risen Lord, makes certain our conviction that he is who he claimed to be. Jesus is no figment of our imagination. He was a real man who did the things recorded in Scripture. He lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. The testimony is sure. We have a living Savior. Now, 
after the resurrection, he did ascend into the spiritual realm. So we can no longer see him today. But someday he is coming back. And every eye will then behold him. Until then, he lives in our hearts by faith. And if you haven't invited him in, he's waiting to enter your heart today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the historical evidence that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, and he's coming back. I thank you. I thank you that the promise of his return empowers us to live positively with confidence, knowing that we've not been abandoned. Our hope in a Savior is not something we conjured up to, to find a sense of peace. It's, it's true. We, we commit ourselves to that truth. We live on the basis of that truth. We have confidence that Jesus is for real. We live in a world today when truth is questioned and denied. Everyone wants to verify things by science, but science can't tell us everything. Science cannot confirm a spiritual realm. Science cannot confirm a living Savior who's here and who lives within us now. Give us boldness, give us confidence, give us assurance as we think through the events following the death and resurrection of our Lord and make us faithful witnesses of our risen Lord. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.